Welcome to What Are You Reading, a podcast dedicated to leadership development through a commitment to reading. This is your host, Eugene Yang, and this week we are joined with Dr. John Noggle, Lieutenant Colonel, United States Army, retired. Dr. John Noggle is currently the ninth head of school at the Haverford School in Pennsylvania. He served for 20 years in the United States Army as an armor officer, including multiple combat deployments in support of Operation Desert Storm and Operation Iraqi Freedom. He's the author of Learning to Eat Soup with a Knife and Knife Vice, as well as a co-author of the Counterinsurgency Field Manual. Dr. Noggle has been a professor at both West Point and the Naval Academy, and served as a military assistant to two Deputy Secretaries of Defense. He is currently serving as a Senior Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia, and formerly served as a member of the Defense Policy Board and as the President of the Center for a New American Security. He was a distinguished graduate of the United States Military Academy, honor graduate at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, and a Rhodes Scholar at the University of Oxford, where he received his master's and doctoral degrees. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. It is a privilege to see you again, Eugene. Thanks for thinking of me. So first question for you, what are you reading these days? Yeah, so uh, like like lots of people, I think I've been uh, catching up on pandemics. So John Barry's uh, the great influenza, right? Everybody has, right? But uh, I went down to the shore a couple of weeks ago and did light reading. My, my beach reading was a pandemic book called Get Well Soon, History's Worst Plagues and the Heroes Who Fought Them by Jennifer Wright, which is, if you're a geek, is a really fun beach read. If you didn't think that we are super lucky to be living in these times, we are super lucky to be living in these times. You would never pick any other time in history to be living than now after you read Get Well Soon. So I commend it. Also like a lot of other people, uh, because I run a school now and I'm concerned about building a welcoming school where all my boys feel safe. It's a boys school. Uh, I just read Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which uh, a lot of people are. It's on the bestseller lists and I, I commend it as well. And my current read just uh, this week uh, is Isabel Wilkerson's cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, which was excerpted in the New York Times Magazine a couple of weeks ago. And the excerpt is astoundingly good. She's a Pulitzer Prize winner, writes for the New York Times. Uh, There's an Oprah's Book Club selection. And it is a original look at America's original set of racism. I haven't cracked it. I did read the New York Times Magazine excerpt. It was a cover story a couple of weeks ago, and and she writes just beautifully. So I'm excited about that. Uh, so that's 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 where I am right now. Not as much national security stuff, although I would argue I'm working on a piece with uh, Paul Yingling and uh, Kim Fields, both of whom I've written with before, both retired Army officers, on reconceptualizing national security. And I think it's pretty clear right now that public health is a national security asset and we need to think of national security perhaps a bit more broadly than ships and planes and tanks, much as I like ships and planes and tanks. Right, right. I guess I'm curious what your thoughts are, especially as head of school on how to be an anti-racist. What were some key takeaways or big thoughts and how you can translate that into action? Yeah. In the aftermath of George Floyd's killing, I, I made a commitment to my community that uh, you know, we are a school that, that prides itself in developing men of character. And we've obviously not, not allowed overt racism to happen, but punished both staff and faculty and, and boys if any of that came to light. 
Uh, but I swore that we were going to produce anti-racists, work hard to actively produce people who fought against racism, uh, sexual discrimination, any kind of discrimination or bigotry in all its forms. And so we are, we're working really hard on, on what that looks like from uh, reviewing our curriculum and our reading lists to we, we've had a program for a number of years called My Brother's Keeper. So we had a, a, a card out to uh, a little wallet card to um, all of our kids, uh, all of our middle school and upper school boys that says, if I know of a, a boy who is suffering from alcohol or drug abuse uh, or is experimenting with them, I'll call this number. There'll be no disciplinary consequences, but there'll be an intervention. Uh, we're adding uh, discrimination uh, to that. And we're working through the, the exact wording of, of what that's going to say. But so, uh, we're, we're relooking our hiring practices. And we, we, we tried for a long time to hire and promote people of color to try to build a faculty that are both windows and mirrors for our, our kids of color. Uh, and and we're, we're putting more resources behind that. Um, we've had, I'm very proud to report, we've had uh, some very generous alumni have reached out and created a, a scholarship to uh, specifically to bring a child uh, of color and have the, the preference for the, the wording on the scholarship we're working on right now, but it's, uh, um, we've never had an African-American kid on our very good golf team. And a bunch of my, my golf alums and golf parents said, there should be, right, there's a, a sport that, that changes lives. It's a lifetime sport. Um, and and it's, it's appalling that we've never had a, an African-American, a black kid on the golf team. And so we're, we're working with a company a nonprofit called First Tee that tries to democratize uh, golf, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna provide a scholarship to a, a black golfer, and we're gonna have a black golfer in our golf team. Damn it! And and so right, it, it's it's incremental. None of the individual steps probably sound like that much, but collectively, we're we're trying to to turn the ship. I'm very fond of uh, the quote. Uh, I can't remember the the author. It was a 19th century abolitionist uh, said, uh, "The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice." And President Obama actually had that uh, woven into the the rug he had in the Oval Office. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. I think it was quoted by Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, we we are trying to bend our our moral arc toward justice. Yeah, and we're working on it. And I'm, I'm uh, enormously proud as I, as I go back to Kendi, a group of my faculty, this was this was bottom up. Um, I, I made this commitment to becoming, to producing anti-racists and a couple of my faculty members, young faculty members got together and said, we don't know what that means. We don't know what that looks like. Hmm. This is the best book on it. Let's, let's pull a bunch of guys together and read it. And we've got 50 faculty members from all three divisions, lower, middle and upper folks from my staff getting together three times over the summer to spend two hours discussing Kendi's how to be an anti-racist. It's just fantastic, right? So we're, we're taking advantage of this crisis, this opportunity, we're, right, we're all staying home more than we used to and we're reading good books while we do it. Yeah, I, I wanna ask a little bit more about that bottom up phenomenon, right? That's reacting to this crisis. I guess what I'm wondering is, what does that look like for maybe like junior military officers who may be also reacting to certain things in society or culture? Like, what are some things that you saw that enabled those folks to to do that and then bring change on an organizational scale? Yeah, of course, uh, I am am uh, very old and very fat now, and it has been a long, long time since I've been a junior military officer. As we were discussing earlier, my peers are now two-star generals. God help me. 
Um, my, my West Point classmates um, still right, still in uniform, and I'm, I'm super proud. And right, they are they are better people to talk to about uh, junior officers um, than than am I. But uh, when I was one, certainly I believed very strongly in the the merit of reading. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got my first sort of grown-up publications in Armour Magazine, uh, the branch magazine for the mounted combat arm of decision, then at, at Fort Knox, Kentucky. And it's a funny story. I was uh, sent to uh, to Knox and had some time, but in, sort of in between, and, and uh, they said, uh, yeah, we, we, you can snowbird or blackbird or whatever it's called and go mow lawns and stuff. And I said... <laughs> You know, can, can can I can I find a job myself? And they said, uh, sure, come back and tell us what you find. So I went and knocked on the door at Armour Magazine, and uh, said, hey, can, you know, can I help? Can I can I could sweep out the office? Uh, and uh, they said, you can read. And I said, sort of. Uh, and uh, they said, here's the book. Here's the bookshelf full of books we need reviewers for. Yeah. And I said, really? And they said, yeah. And at that point, I had more time than money. And so, uh, I, 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 you know, I was a kid in candy store. So I picked off three books, four books, and I started reviewing them, right? I'd read a book and I'd write the review that day. And so for months, I, I was I, there were novel book reviews in Armour Magazine. And I, I found a, a subject that interested me, ended up writing um, what ended up becoming my first cover on Armour Magazine. And I, I got hooked. I loved seeing my, my words, my thoughts in print. And people would come up to me and argue with me about the stuff I'd written. It was great, right? That's that's my idea of a good time, right? Let's let's talk about World War II tank destroyer doctrine. I love it. Um, I'm sort of a geek, and 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 so when I became uh, when I had junior officers working for me as a cavalry troop commander, right? We would read books together and and read Armor Magazine, and we'd argue about it. And I'd write articles for Armor Magazine based on our discussions and the experiences we were having at that time, getting ready for the Bosnia intervention. And, and then we'd read our own stuff and we'd argue about it. So um, it's a, a business, as you know, um, where, where an awful lot of the, the, the last 15 years has been different. But, but for the first 10 years of my active duty time, other than Desert Storm and Bosnia, which I guess are some pretty big others, right, an awful lot of the time you're preparing for war and your job is to prepare right. for war. And, and rather than wait and find out about war when you're experiencing it for the first time. Let's, let's do the reading first. Yeah. And, and that was uh, very much the philosophy I had. And it's, it's still the philosophy I have for national security professionals. And I'm, I'm super proud. You know, one of my old army buddies, uh, Patrick Donahoe is now the major general commanding Fort Benning the maneuver center. And, and Pat is a huge, still a huge reader as a two-star general. He finds time to read and, he, he tweets out what, you know, what, what wonderful assets we have that we didn't have when I was you, when I was a young officer. Right? We, we've got podcasts and, and folks can listen to podcasts when they go for a run and, and right, work out their, their, their physical fitness and their intellectual fitness at the same time. And, and we've got Twitter. And so you can see what you know, Pat Donahoe, Major General Commanding Fort Benning, every lieutenant at Benning can see what the CG is reading. And, and, and hopefully he inspires some of them to right, not, not just hang out at the infantry bar, but, but spend at least a little bit in it. None of them at the infantry bar right now. I'm sure Pat has it closed down. And, and there's nothing wrong with hanging out at the I-bar uh, when, when, when we're not in the time of COVID and 
good discussions can can happen there and i'm not opposed to that by any means but let's spend some of the time at the i bar talking about the books the cg is reading and the example he's setting so yeah pretty good stuff right no yeah absolutely i kind of want to ask a little bit about writing so you know You've written a lot and very frequently and as well, you know, you've encouraged, you know, your students and junior officers to, to write and engage in, in that kind of dialogue. What advice would you have for maybe people who are hesitant to or unsure? And as well, what kind of topics maybe do you think that, you know, they should be writing about now in these days that we need more discussion on? Yeah. Um, so when, when uh, one of my favorite things to do is, is help people younger than me, which is an increasing percentage of the population, it will soon be everybody, uh, right? Help them think about where they are best suited uh, to, to put their talents to use for the common good. And one of the questions I ask them is, what do you read for fun? Hmm. And the answer to that question uh, is, is also is the same, is also the answer to the question, what should you write about? Write about what you care about. Read, read some of the books in the field, find out what books other people are reading and there's a pandemic right what, what are the, the best book is john barry's the great influenza it's fantastic right you you have to have read that uh and but it's, it's pretty heavy going and then there's get well soon which is which you can read on the beach and and right you you, you read a couple of books and then just for fun write a write a review essay about those books and send it in right send it send it someplace there's there's war it's easier to publish than it ever has been and you can self-publish, or right? you can create a blog. You can publish on your Facebook page. Yeah, there, there's, there's, there's no excuse for not getting your ideas out there and engage in the intellectual conflict, right? Uh, so, so Paul Yingling likes to say, uh, "Steel sharpens steel." Find a, a, a buddy, uh, and and Paul and I for years, and we've re recently just picked him up again. We, his his kids, uh, when they were younger, called it Daddy's Playdate. Every Sunday morning, if he was in the field and I was in the field, Paul and I would talk on the phone for an hour and we'd talk about what we were reading and what was going on in the world. And a, a whole bunch of our articles came from those conversations. And we just sent a piece off to Defense One that came out of that conversation. So get your ideas out there. Maybe find somebody that, right, Paul, Paul and my joke is that uh, he does most of the, he writes the first drafts. And then my job is to knock the craziest third off of it. <laughs> but as Paul says, that 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 is uh, an enormous benefit to him because he can't tell which part is the craziest. And and so I I, I do that for him. And and uh, then then we we send the ideas out. But I, I just um, I, I I still do some of this. I, I reviewed. Uh, I won't say for what journal um, in the defense field. I reviewed a a, a submission. The submission was not very good. And it had, uh, you know, significant grammar and spelling errors on each of the first three pages. And that, right, that's, that's not ready for prime time. So have somebody, my, you know, my advice, the reviewer's advice to, to the author, whoever it was, was find a buddy to, to, to bounce this stuff off of. Hopefully a buddy like Paul Yingling, right, who's smarter than I am, a buddy who's smarter than you. And, and have, them, have them knock off the, the worst bits and, and get it to a level where you're not going to be humiliated, publicly humiliated when you, right, when you publish this. And, and so please find that circle, create a, a little circle, a, a reading circle, a discussion circle that, that reads books together and argues about them. And we've got this fantastic technology that we didn't have 
uh, where you can you can do it over Zoom or you can you can do it by phone while you're walking your dog, which is what I usually do. Engage in the debate. Don't embarrass yourself. Find somebody you trust. Find a, a mentor, right? Somebody in every battalion size unit, there's uh, there's some poor unfortunate soul, uh, let's call him Noggle, who geeks out and loves this stuff and would be super happy to read your right your diatribe that you're going to send to small wars journal or or defense one or whatever it is and say yeah hey this is pretty good or you need to well, you know let's spend 10 minutes talking about what the thesis of this piece is and and work on the, the you know, five paragraph uh, essay format find somebody to help you and and then i think you'll have the you, it'll, you'll be more confident going forward and not get egg on your face. Uh, you know, like the, the poor kid who, what was it? We had a, a kid who engaged on Twitter and said that uh, we needed haircuts in this time of coronavirus. And you didn't see this. No, I missed that so, one. Some, some lieutenant like engaged with a, a two star or three star and said, sorry, you're wrong. Haircuts are the essence of military discipline. And, you know, I actually kid the lieutenant. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for deciding to serve. Uh, we appreciate your contributions to national security. But the three star may may be right on this. That that uh, taking the risk right now, given where the the COVID nineteen is. COVID nineteen is a more serious threat to our national security and our, our military readiness than here over your ears is. We'll be okay, really, honestly. Uh, but but so you know, have, have, have sometimes discretion is a better part of valor. But in general. Right. If, if, and in particular, if you're writing book reviews, that's about as low stress as it gets. It's a great way to start. It gives you something to push against. And, and you say, you know, this, this book is great or, or uh, you know, there's a better book. And, and that's a, uh, that's a, I, I, I continue to find that to be a beneficial way to, to engage. And I, I'm super grateful that, you know, every six months or year or so, the Wall Street Journal will, will reach out to me and say, hey, Noggle, review this one for us and mm -hmm. it's great it's fun right yeah absolutely yeah. that's how you get started you start out by writing for your reviewing books for your branch magazine they've got just like just like armor magazine your branch magazine whatever it is has a bookshelf with a stack of books on it waiting to be reviewed when you're at your home base when you're when you're you know at the, the home of your branch stop by your branch magazine knock on the door and ask them to see the shelf if you're not there and you can't get there, reach out to them and say, hey, what you got any books on this? I'm sort of interested in this and I'm cheap. Yeah, no, that's really good advice. Yeah. On the topic of books and um, theses, in, in your book, Learn to Eat Soup with a Knife, um, adapted from your thesis, you discuss the challenges of military innovation and the need for continual organizational learning in order for us to adapt for future conflict. What does that look like now as we start pivoting towards great power competition and specifically how should mid-career officers, how can we engage in creating the organizational culture that can facilitate that type of learning? So you know, the, the thesis of learning to eat soup with a knife was that organizations, including military services, have cultures uh, and those cultures predispose them to uh, success in certain directions and to innovation in those same directions. And so I argued that the organizational culture of the United States Army inclined to industrial age warfare, to winning through superior logistics. The U.S. Army is largely a logistics organization, uh, best, best logistics in the world, and uh, to force on force fighting, to uh, 
uh, Desert Storm kind of wars. And I wrote it in the aftermath of, of Desert Storm. I'd seen that firsthand, that uh, in, in the world of tanks and fighter planes and ships, nobody in the world could touch us. But I argued our very superiority in conventional war fighting made it less likely that future enemies would fight us that way. They had all watched Desert Storm 2. Uh, they saw what happened when you tried to take the U.S. Army on in frontal tank battle. And as a result, they wouldn't do it. I argued they would, would be far more likely to fight us as insurgents, as terrorists, uh, and, and therefore we needed to create a, a learning organization that could fight at both ends of the spectrum of conflict. And I argued that that was the, the, the spectrum I argued was, uh, and, and our need to innovate was inclined toward the low end of the spectrum because we were coming off the Cold War, we were coming off Desert Storm, uh, and the organizational culture, all those forces tilted the scales toward conventional innovation and, and, and conventional capability. And, and so we would have to make a conscious effort to tilt the scales in the other direction. Uh, and the good news is I was right because a couple of people read my book and the, the bad and people want me to do podcasts and stuff. And the bad news is I was right because September 11th and Iraq and Afghanistan, right? Good news again is that we did in fact innovate uh, broadly speaking in the direction I had suggested we needed to. We became more capable at counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. The bad news is it took longer than it should have, and we lost more folks than we should have, both on our side and on the enemy's side. On the, the we, we created and a lot for a while we were creating more insurgents than we were taking off the battlefield. So so we we got better. Books remain to be written. You know, I did not support the invasion of Iraq in 2003, even believing that Saddam Hussein's Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. I, I still believed, I, I believe that, that you could deter the use of those weapons. I continue to believe that, broadly speaking. Even, even King, Kim Jong-un does not want to end in a, uh, right, in a mushroom cloud. Um, uh, deterrence works at the high end. Um, deterrence also works at, at the mid level. And this is sort of a specific answer to your question. So we need to continue to have the ability to deter conventional force on force conflict against uh, a rising China and a uh, declining but still dangerous Russia. Uh, but the, the good news on both of those fronts is, is, again, that that is what the organizational cultures of the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines are inclined to. The, the Navy wants to build more ships. The, the Army wants to continue to have tanks. The, the, the Marines, tanks were actually never a particularly good fit for the, the sort of expedition culture of the Marines, and they've gotten rid of them now, I've seen, seen recently. And uh, will, will, will we miss the, the Marines uh, coming to now to uh, Fort Benning and, and winning the PT award, the honor grad award at every one of our armor basic and advanced courses? Sort of, but but you know, the Marines will be okay without tanks, and if, if the Marine Corps needs tanks, the Army can can provide them. We've got plenty, right? Um, we'll, we'll be okay there. As we step away from big counterinsurgency campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan, while I hope continuing to support the governments that we've helped stand up there uh, at, at enormous expense, and, and, and it is, I believe, continues to be in America's interest to support those regimes with relatively small five figures, four figures, numbers of, of troops uh, for, for the foreseeable future. I, I predict for decades to come, and that's okay. Right? We continue to have troops in Germany, Italy, Japan, Korea, 
South Korea, right? I mean, that, that's what America does. If it's important enough to fight a war there, if it's important enough to shed American blood there, it's important enough to stay there to keep the next war from breaking out. That's okay. Um, we marry people from those countries and they come back and, and right, en enrich the culture of, of the, the United States and improve our food. And uh, right, it's, you know, it's all good, right? It's, it's what we do. It's great. Um, so I, I, I hope we continue to do that. My, my hope uh, is that uh, we create the ability that we, we really haven't ever had as, as an army or as a nation to be equally good across the spectrum of conflict. I don't want there to be any chinks in our armor. I don't, I don't, I don't want somebody to, to be able to say, uh, as they, they said after Vietnam, you know, the army literally burned the books on counterinsurgency after Vietnam. We forgot how to do that. We didn't train how to do that. Now, is it hard to train across the spectrum of conflict? It is. But if we are good enough on the high end and in the middle, uh, as I believe we, we are and will continue to be, our, our, our enemies won't choose, our adversaries won't choose to fight us there. They will continue to try to engage in relatively inexpensive, low and asymmetric conflict, low intensity conflict. That's where the fighting is actually going to happen. And so I, I believe uh, that, that that is an incentive right, for, uh, and, and for rather than relegating security forces assistance uh, exclusively to, to special forces and SOCOM, where that, that you know, big army is going to continue to have a need for security force assistance brigades, for instance. And that's a relatively cheap capability. Uh, you know, people are, are expensive, but they, they don't need a lot of hardware those folks. And by the way, they're, they're very rank heavy. Uh, a special forces assistance brigade is essentially a division in waiting. You know, just, just to have privates, right? And, and you can turn it into a, a fully armed combat division. And it's, it's, it's easy to create privates. We can do that in six months in time of crisis. It's, it's really hard to create majors, lieutenant colonels, sergeants first class. That, 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 it takes 15 years. And and so let's let's keep a bunch of them around, and and we can we can use them to train foreign security forces. That's a, a, a multiplier for the national security interests of the United States, and and it, it helps if we if we use them correctly. They influence the policy of those nations uh, in in ways that are, are beneficial to the United States and our interests around the globe. Uh, they don't cost very much, and they provide us that expansion ability for. Uh, conventional conflict, if it, or or for large-scale counterinsurgency, if if we need that again. Right. How do we balance that? You know, considering you know limited resources and time, you know, only so many folks, and training them and and focusing them on you know mission sets. Is there tension there in our ability to train across the spectrum? If we you know definitely need to be prepared for this and prioritize for that, you know, what does that look like in great power competition? Yeah, so, so clearly right there, there is always uh, inherent tension, right? There's never enough time or resources to do everything you want to do. Uh, and, and I don't believe the same units can be equally capable across the entire spectrum. Uh, and, and so this is why I was an early advocate of, uh, I call them advisor brigades, but uh, security force assistance brigades is probably actually a better name. That's fine, right? So, so we, we, we create units that are specialized for different areas on the spectrum of conflict. And as I said, the, the good news about SFABs is that, that they are they're cheap by comparison. Uh, you know, I'd like to see similar 
resources in particular in the Air Force. We, we, we continue to suffer, I believe, because we have not created sort of Sky Raider units. Uh, it would have been great. It'd be great for the Afghan Army to have uh, right, the Afghan Army Air Corps to have propeller-driven close air support airplanes that can do what they need to do, right, that, that are, are, are really good for close air support in that kind of fight. And, and we have not created the same security force assistance capability, right? So, so we, we'd love, as a counter, speaking as a counterinsurgency theorist, uh, would love the U.S. Air Force to have that kind of capability, that propeller-driven capability. So I, I think it's a relatively cheap investment. We are, you know, in the wake of this pandemic, we're going to be thinking hard as a nation about where we spend our, our national security dollars. I mentioned a minute ago, I'm working on a piece with a couple of friends about reconceptualizing national security to include some of the, the what, what who, who would have thought that the, the gravest threat to the United States in the year 2020 uh, was not going to be war with Iran, which looked imminent in, in sort of January, but was going to be, a, you know, a virus, a microscopic virus. It's brought us to our knees as a nation. And, and so we're, we're, we're going to have to think hard as a, as a U.S. government about what threats we need to prioritize. But I, I continue to believe that we can afford a couple of security force assistance brigades, uh, that we could put a couple of them in the guard. My concern uh, you know, the, these were created by Mark Milley when he was uh, chief of staff of the Army. He's now chairman. Uh, they're not going to go away while he's chairman. But when, when Milley is no longer on the scene, is is the, the SFAB going to stick around? What I consider to be bad ideas, uh, I, I think, are, are we still wearing berets, black berets as an Army? Is that still... Have we finally gotten rid of, of that particular? No, I think I've seen some around. They're, they're still around? Right. That was a Rick Shinseki, which was like 20 years ago. We, we went to the, the the Black Beret. So so if bad ideas have that kind of, and, and General Shinseki, I apologize if you listen to this, but but uh, not everybody knows, not everybody looks good in a beret. Um, and and I, at first, I'm a big fan of the patrol cap. It keeps the rain out of my eyes. I wear glasses, right? The, the beret and the glasses just don't work. So it'd be great if bad ideas like the beret stick around that long. Hopefully good ideas like the Security Force Assistance Brigade will stick around for 20 years because within the next 20 years, we're going to need that capability again. And honestly, we're probably going to need that capability continuously through the next 20 years. Yeah. And I think also, I guess I'm curious what your thoughts are on, you know, kind of tying in the pandemic and relating back to, you know, post-Vietnam, you know, burn the books, so to speak. Like, what does it look like to maintain, you know, the changes and the policies or like the lessons learned for, for dealing with this pandemic that's become a large national security issue currently? What does that look like? Yeah. So, uh, again, let me let me push you toward get well soon. Jennifer Wright just has some, some really good conclusions uh, that include that, that, that uh, and, and she published this before right uh, before this this great pandemic I mean talk about it she published it in 2017 so so you know prescient it, it hasn't gotten the press that that uh, I believe it deserves but but she concludes by saying you know don't make these political make sure the government tells the truth so the, the last great uh, pandemic one of the big problems was that uh, the US government, all the governments that were involved in World War One were not telling the truth about it. It's called the Spanish flu uh, because Spain was the first government to, to allow its papers to publish the truth of what was going on, although it started in Kansas, for goodness sake. We ought to call it the Kansas flu uh, rather than the Spanish flu. 
Uh, but but so governments that don't tell the truth about these things that lose the trust of, of their of their people exacerbate the problem. And we, we've seen that here in the United States. That lesson is, is a lesson we need to maintain. Um, and, and then the, the, you know, Dr. Fauci can tell you everything else you need to do. Right? You listen to the experts and you do what the experts say. So I, I'm, th this has been, uh, I, I strongly recommend the, uh, uh, the current cover story of the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, is it uh, Ed Yong? This cover story is something like Why We Failed. I read it online, so I don't have it to hold up. Ed does Ed's writing on this pandemic has been absolutely fantastic for The Atlantic. I'm confident he'll have the first great book out on it you know, probably next year, probably in 2021. Read it and do what Ed says. So we're, we're going to know what needs to be done. We've literally made every mistake possible. Um, if, we've, if we've read you know, Jennifer's book and paid attention to it, we wouldn't have done it. This is uh, an invasion of Iraq level, a September 11th level failure of the U.S. government. We have no business being great power making mistakes of this magnitude. And uh, some of the most the, the most brutal brutal writing I've seen, and this this may and may not be from Young, uh, is uh, this is the first time for, since the United States became the world's great power. Uh, most important great power a century ago. Countries around the world have felt many things about the United States. They've envied us, they've hated us, they've loved us, they've admired us. Uh, this is the first time they've pitied us. And and that's how bad our reaction has been. And and you know, you look at the countries that uh, look at look at look at the, the countries whose citizens France will allow to enter. It's not us. Uganda has done nothing, nothing against Uganda. Uganda has done a far better job as a nation. Uh, the, the citizens of the nation of Uganda can travel to France right now and the citizens of the United States cannot. That, that's, that's not the way it ought to be in this world. The, the lessons are, are not going to be hard to figure out. Ed Young has already captured them. Read his book and do what he says and read, read uh, Jennifer's book and do what she says and, and we'll be okay. And in this way, it's it's a little bit like the counterinsurgency revolution, right? Uh, that I was a part of. I didn't come up with anything new. I just read the, and, and this may be where you're going to go next, but but I, I just read the books from the the folks who figured it out the last time, right? So you know, I read uh, Krepinevich's book, The Army in Vietnam. I read The Army as Party Institution, right? Uh, Downey, Richard Downey's book. I read uh, Frank Kitson's books. Uh, I read. Uh, the great biography of um, the of, of Templar, the Tiger of Malaya, and all these folks had figured out the same things. I read Mao, which, which was was the opposite side of the coin, right? I didn't read, ironically, uh, the the greatest book on counterinsurgency, David Galula's book, Counterinsurgency Warfare Theory and Practice, because in the wake of Vietnam, the greatest book on counterinsurgency got buried. I didn't read that until after I'd written Learning Deeds Soup with a Knife. And, and, and so the great books got, got nobody was reading them. We were, we were um, at uh, the Army War College. Um, God, I can see his face. It's, it's hell getting old, uh, Eugene. The thinker at the uh, Army War College who, who wrote a piece on called uh, Counterinsurgency, Keeping the Flame Alive, right? We were, there were this group of sort of monks hiding in caves with the last remaining scroll uh, during the Dark Ages. And, and we, we pulled them out and blew the dust off and said, here, here, we, right? People have, in fact, done this before. It's not that hard. 
it's it's the essential it's essentially you know keep it wear a mask and be socially distanced and wash your hands it's not much more complicated than that protect the population first not that hard and uh but but in the same way people didn't want to didn't want to do it and we've got to we've got to keep that flame alive again and not uh let's not burn the books appreciate all of the recommendations and, and books and thoughts here kind of covering a large span from you know current events and you know the pandemic to you know, what does this look like for junior military officers in, in riding do you have any final thoughts or words of wisdom for the the dod reads audience out there yeah um and i'm now um uh, you know fat and 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 uh, tired and old i'm wearing my first civilian division t-shirt which i find i think i have to stand up to the camera so that's the first armchair division uh which is a play on the first Mardiv, um uh, for which i fought in uh, in al anbar back a lifetime ago literally literally 15 years ago uh, jim mattis was the division commander back then uh, you know, uh now former secretary of defense what i said um so actually when i was still serving is i, I sort of wandered the dod ecosphere preaching counterinsurgency this goes all the way back to, to you know the immediate wake of september 11th joe collins called me the johnny appleseed of counterinsurgency i wandered around from post to post planting seeds and we saw if they would grow all the way back then i i talked about the fact that i had joined the military in the wake of vietnam you know 10 years after vietnam i, I came in in 1984 at a time when the United States was at peace. And while I knew there was a possibility that I'd have to go to war, and it actually happened earlier than I thought in, in Operation Desert Storm, uh, it is one thing to, to join the military in a time of peace, and it is an entirely different thing to join it in time of war. And so I am enormously grateful for the folks, your generation of, of soldiers, public servants, air, sailors, airmen, whatever, uh, Marines, who have chosen to serve our nation in a time of war. It is an entirely different thing to join an all-volunteer force in a time of war. And when we set up the all-volunteer force in the wake of Vietnam in the mid-70s, uh, we, we also established the selective service because we, we could not have imagined as a nation that we could fight a protracted war without having to draft kids. And, and in fact, we have not only fought one protracted war, but two, uh, for, for a generation at this point. And we continue to exceed recruiting standards and goals. Your generation of young people continues to volunteer to serve in a time of war. And I can't tell you what that says about this generation of young Americans and how grateful I am to them. I'm privileged now to, to serve as the head of school of a boys' school that sends kids to the best colleges and universities in America and the world. We send, uh, you know, we graduate 100 kids a year. We send uh, a dozen of them to the University of Pennsylvania. We send them to Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Stanford and, and all over the place. And every year we send a couple of them to service academies. And uh, so I, I see this generation. I am still in touch with, with the, 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 the kids. And you can't be in education, you can't work with young people in America today and not feel good about the future of this country. So though America is going through a tough time right now, 
I have enormous faith in this country, in this dream that is America, and this idea that um, uniquely among the, the countries of the world, uh, this is a place where whatever your race, your color, your creed, if you believe in, in the principles on which America was founded, if you believe in democracy, you can become an American and we, we, we will use your talents and, and your gifts and your desire to serve and, and make this, continue to make this the greatest country the world has ever known. A lot of work we still have to do. Kendi talked about some of that work. We've talked about some of it in this, in this discussion. A whole lot of really great people dedicated to forming a more perfect union. And uh, I'm, I'm proud for the, the small role I played in uniform, role I continue to play in a very small way, uh, nibbling around the edges of, of national security and public service while doing my day job of, of helping great young Americans learn and grow and love this country and find the ways to dedicate their talents to making the greatest country on earth even greater. So thanks for the, thanks for the chance to, to talk to you, Eugene. It's great to see you again, proud of you. And uh, thanks for the work you do in um, providing this resource for, for folks to, to think about and, and uh, keep them company while they run or while they walk their dogs. Super grateful, proud of you. Yes, sir. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for listening to this episode of What Are You Reading? A podcast produced through partnership with DOD Reads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share it. Leave us a comment with your answer to the question, what are you reading? Also, visit dodreads.com for free books, book reviews, interviews with your favorite authors, and many more free professional development resources. See you next week.